0: Morning, everyone. We'll be turning to um, John chapter 13. And uh, we're going to try to pick up where we left off last week. So, bear with me here. So um, we focused on uh, verses 1-17 through 17 of John chapter 13 last week, which was the lesson of humility that the Lord uh, taught or demonstrated to the apostles in the upper room as they were partaking of the Passover feast in the institution of the Lord's Supper, or right prior to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And of course, just just to refresh our memories, we uh, are familiar with what happened. Uh, uh, We believe from what Luke tells us that the the, uh, apostles were arguing amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Of course, their perception of the kingdom was it was going to be an earthly kingdom. And they didn't understand the kingdom at that time. Uh, But they were arguing among themselves, and then at some point... uh, Our Lord gets up and uh, removes His garments and girds Himself with a towel, uh, gets a basin of water and proceeds to wash the feet of the apostles, Uh, and uh, eventually comes to Peter. We talked about uh, Peter's interaction with the Lord, and uh, and then we kind of shifted gears a little bit. We began talking about humility a little bit, and so I want to kind of pick up and maybe recap that just a little. Uh, We define humility as uh, the quality or the state of being humble. Uh, The term humble is defined as not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, unpretentious and modest. And then modesty or modest means unassuming or moderate in the estimation of, uh, uh, of one's worth or one's achievements or one's abilities. And then, uh, made the comment also that humility is a learned trait. Uh, And I think that to be a very true, valid statement, Uh, we define uh, humility as the quality of being humble. And uh, the comment was made that being humble is not some talent that you're just blessed with at birth, but rather it's something that every one of us is capable of doing uh, capable of practicing it and, 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 and really no excuse not to be that way. It's something that can be a way of life. True, true humility is not sitting around and thinking about how humble you are. It is washing feet. It is a mindset. It is a state of the heart, as I said, said last week. And we talked about the word virtue uh, a little bit uh, as well. Virtue is defined as conformity to a standard of right, morality, but it's also defined as a, a commendable quality or trait. And that was the, the definition that we kind of focused in with that. Uh, uh, made the comment that uh, uh, humility is the root of all virtues. Uh, it's the baseline, it's the basis of the foundation on which any other great character trait will survive. Uh, within you. Uh, Humility means to us what the Lord taught the apostles in chapter 13. It means putting our pride aside and it means serving our fellow Christians and our fellow men. Uh, And and of course we'll go ahead and as we'll talk this morning we're going to be contrasting that with pride. Uh, uh, It means absence of pride. You can't serve if you can't, um, or you can't serve if you are proud. Uh, Galatians 6, 9 through 10 reads, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those uh, who are of the household of faith. God's people are as good as they give, whatever that giving is, uh, whether that be mercy, as we've talked about a little bit there, or I'd, I'd like to put maybe a, a different uh, angle to that, giving a blessing. You know, we, we understand what the term blessing means uh uh, from from the Old Testament, uh, Esau and Jacob are the perfect example of the significance of that of, of what a blessing was in that culture and in that uh, in in the Old Testament. I want to suggest to you that you have a blessing that you can give. You have a blessing you can give. You can bless anyone around you. Uh, when we were living out in Texas, I ran across a little book in a in a used bookstore uh, called "The Blessing." And that's kind of what the, the book was about, was that uh, you, you have the ability to make a person feel accepted, uh, to make them feel self-worth. You have the ability to give that person a blessing. God's people are as good as they give. And if your standard involves no mercy at all, you're not going to receive mercy. And James 2.13 tells us that. So speak. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And and of course, James is making this statement to warn us to live according to God's merciful standard. God's standard is merciful. And, And you know, we use the term winner. We hear that tossed around in our culture today. The world's going to determine... Uh, you know, if you're a winner on the basis really of what it sees or, uh, uh, or what you have or what you have done in this, this life, God is going to determine if you're a winner on the basis of what you are. Being defined as a winner in the world, that's not really very important. Uh, living in eternity is really all that matters. And I'd reference you back to Brother Blackwell's uh, three lessons that he gave to us that were such a great foundation for exactly what I'm saying. We must do what the Scriptures tell us to do in order for us to live in eternity. And if if our relationships with one another are in our relationships with, with one another, that has to be the standard as well. Humility is the absence of pride. Another passage we'll, we'll use it as, as a reference here is 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Again, we, we made a comment about Peter and, and the example that he saw there in the upper room that we're focused on here in John 13. and I, I see it woven into this passage right here uh, in, in his thinking, in his mindset. Throughout God's Word, uh, we, we see humility contrasted with pride. Being humble is being non-assertive uh, or not being overbearing with our self-esteem. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling good about ourselves. Nothing wrong about feeling positive about ourselves. we we'll go back again to Brother Blackwell. We ought to feel good about our salvation. That ought to really warm us inside and make us, if we're walking in the light, be very, very happy and proud of that. Nothing nothing wrong with that. But that, that positive feeling ought to come from that very thing, knowing that we're walking in the light. We, we, we should not allow our our, our our feelings to be such that, that we think we're above any one person in any such way. And, and that ought to be particularly true in the church. We ought to consider ourselves as the least among the least of our brothers and sisters. Another passage that we want to reference is Colossians 3. 12 through six. It's kind of crowded on there, but read along with me. Therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one, one body and be thankful. And of course, verse 16 we're often using when we're talking about the use of instrumental music in the church. But, but let's, let's, let's look at verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts. The first part of that, of that verse... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That, that's the basis. That's the foundation that we have. Another passage I don't have a slide for Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in love. We're, we're patient. We're patient with one another. Patient goes, patience goes hand in hand with humility. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Peter's being a, a, a bold, uh, outspoken sort of person. We all have our own personalities and our own character traits and our attributes and so forth. And, and, and we just recognize that that is a given in the way that, that God made us. Uh, we're not all the same. Uh, we're, we're unique. We're unique from one another. But we should not think that, that we as individuals are the standard when we talk about our interaction with someone else, it ought to be in the, the context of love and patience. It should, it should be with the attitude of humbleness in that, that we recognize that, that the, the opinions and the feelings of, of others are important, uh, if not more important than our, than our own. And, and often our pride gets in the way Allowing, you know, not allowing us to be considered, not allowing us to be respectful. Having humility means we let all the guards down. We set aside consideration of our own feelings and our own well-being for the sake and the well-being of our brothers and sisters. We give our fellow Christians. The blessing. the blessing of acceptance and respect and consideration and love. Our, our pride in our own feelings and opinions and thoughts that's, that just sometimes gets in the way of truth and, and in the way of what is good and right. And it's so important to the contrary of what I'm saying that we speak our opinions in such a way that, that, that we do not belittle Another person. Of course, if it's a matter of God's Word, of course we have to be strong and we have to stand up, but, but I'm not necessarily speaking in, in, in that context. Pride does a lot of negative things to us. Pride can cause us to elevate ourselves uh, without concern of, of how we treat others. Pride prevents us from confessing our weaknesses to one another and, and allowing our, our fellow Christians to, to help bear our burdens. It, pride shifts our focus from serving others to serving ourselves. I commented there a little earlier that humility isn't something you sit around thinking about It's washing feet. I heard a brother say this right here uh, in the mid-90s down at Flemington, Alabama. As we were traveling back from vacation in Florida, we stopped for for church services, heard the greatest sermon I've heard on humility. And he said this, humility is something that if you think you've got it, you just lost it. Humility is something, if you think you got it, you just lost it. You, I, I said this, I think, last week. You don't just wake up one morning and think, you know, this beautiful day, good day to be humble. Good day to have humility. It's not something you turn on and off. It's a state of the heart. It's a state of the mind. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three. A man's pride, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Another passage. Matthew 23:12, "And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." You know, we all, you know, it, it's human nature to desire affirmation or even adoration. Uh, You know, that appeals to us. That appeals to our inner senses. But what we really learn from these Scriptures is that only the humble are exalted. Only when we become poor and lowly in spirit can true greatness be obtained in the eyes of God and of man. Being, Being humble or poor in spirit does not mean that we go around feeling all depressed or, or having negative views about ourselves. It, it means that, that we just recognize that our true self-worth is not based upon who we are or what we can accomplish or what we have. Our worth is based upon what God has done for us. our spirituality is just just so critical pride destroys our spirituality it corrupts our motives and pride can turn a righteous act into a selfish act pride not only separates us from god but a haughty spirit destroys our relationships with 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 other people we we cannot afford to let a, a healthy self image be corrupted into a uh, a feeling of superiority and, and I, I would suggest that pride can be just so instrumental in sin. Uh, many sins begin with pride. You know it's real easy, as I say earlier there about our our, our human nature. We consistently exaggerate our own importance and we substitute our wisdom for God's wisdom, often rather than, than giving God the thanks for our successes, uh, we have a tendency to think that we're just self-sufficient. And, and there's many scriptures I could continue to read. Uh, Proverbs 16:18, 18, Proverbs 18:12, 18, it teaches that pride leads us to downfall. Uh, Jesus warned in Matthew 6, those who help others so they can gain the respect of their peers already have their reward. In other words, if we seek the recognition of men, that's all we're going to receive. And and pride can call us to elevate ourselves uh, without concern for how we treat others. Pride shifts our focus from serving others to serving self. Another comment or two, and, and we'll we'll move on. Humility is therapeutic, and, and I I think that most everybody somewhere along in their lives have had an experience uh, where we can say we have been humbled. And I don't know what it is. I know what you know has happened in my life. We had I think we had a great example in Brother Blackwell, if we want to talk about that. Um, you know, it may have been a circumstance that caused it, or, or you may have brought it on yourself by doing something that, that, that you should have done. The, the cause of it is not important. But what I want you to think about is to consider how that moment, how that situation affected you after you come to grips with it. How, how did it affect you after you got past maybe the embarrassment Or the grief, if it was a situation like that. How did you feel? Well, the natural reaction after those bad feelings kind of subside is to kind of go through a period of self-examination. Things you had not considered become obvious or more obvious. Feelings and considerations for other individuals are suddenly important. And you feel compassion. You may feel sorrow, but for a time, you realize that what truly is important are others, how they feel, uh, their well-being. Uh, those experiences change us, at least for a time. Uh, those experiences teach us and. And the question, obvious question, sort of rhetorical, is why are we so dramatically affected by that? Well, the answer is we've been humbled. You have been humbled. You have, you have genuine humility. You've learned humility. It's a learned trait. One of the greatest examples we're touching on a little bit here in John chapter 13 is in Matthew 26 verses 69-75 when Peter heard that rooster crow and he made eye contact with the Lord and he recognized where he was. And what was his reaction to it? He went out and wept bitterly. He had one of those moments where he was humbled and it affected him. You remember what the Lord said. It it affected His character. Humility is good medicine. It it cuts away the cancer of pride. It exposes the man. It makes the man be the servant that God desires him to be. And a servant is not above his master. If if we choose to follow Jesus, we have to follow Him in all of His ways. Not just part of them. And and if he's willing to wash feet, so must we. If he's willing to humble himself, so should we. Jesus was fully a man. And as a man, the Lord and the teacher of those twelve apostles humbled himself to wash their feet. Including the one who betrayed him. Quite an act of humility. As servants, we need to examine ourselves. Verses 18 through 20. John wrote this, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture might, might, may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. Most assuredly I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus not only reveals who would betray Him by one of them, but He he also uh, points out that the betrayal was prophesied many years ago, many years before this, Psalms 41.9. He's telling them that I know the one of you who is going to betray Me. And not only do I know it, it was prophesied. And here's the passage. But in addition to that, he, he's also telling them that this is a, an obvious indication of his divine nature. He he has the ability to predict the future, and they would recognize that. And he once again is demonstrating to them his divinity. Uh, in verses twenty twenty one through thirty, he he reveals the traitor among them, and and until now, the apostles have not really grasped what Jesus has been saying to them. In those verses, he not only makes it plain to the apostles, but he also reveals to Judas that he knows what Judas is planning to do. Verses 21-30, through When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew what reason, for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Jesus, Judas had the, the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received a piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Verse 21 tells us Jesus was greatly troubled in the spirit here. He... he Testified, meaning that he spoke plainly regarding the matter, and it was it was something that pained him. It was something that affected him. Verse twenty-two. They wondered who the betrayer was, and um, and, and each one of them, uh, other than Judas, knowing he was innocent, you know that he had not done that, that he wasn't going to do that. And it's interesting that they they really didn't accuse each other, but rather they simply asked, "Is it I? Is it I?" Let's talk about the scene that we have in our minds there. Um, Brother Massalongo, if you've been looking at the website that we're basing our study off of, uses this, this painting. I'm not sure where it originated from, but, you know, when we talk about scenes of the, of the, uh, the Last Supper in the upper room, you, you, you know, the painting you most often see is De Vincent's, uh Last Supper. And it is historically incorrect. It shows them sitting at a table in chairs with Jesus in the middle and the apostles around them. They didn't do that in that time. The tables were low to the floor, and they sat around on pillows and kind of lounged and leaned over as, as they ate. And, and, and generally they were like that. They were U-shaped. I don't know if the table in the upper room was, but they usually were. And there was an order to, to be followed, uh, that, that they follow. The host or the, the organizer sat at the head of the table, which is at one end. Uh, and, um, and that would allow him to serve or to protect the guest of honor who would be right next to him. So Peter and John, having arranged this, you would think they would consider themselves as the hosts. Uh, and, and we read how John leaned on Jesus' bosom. So you've got to believe that, that Jesus was right beside John. I'm not sure that I agree. If you've listened to Brother Masolongo's, uh online lesson in regard to this, I'm not sure that I agree with everything that he's concluding and that it's somewhat speculative. Uh, it's his opinion. Uh, but it seems reasonable that the reference to the one who is the disciple he loved, is John, who was leaning on his bosom. Uh, and again, it's the custom that the guest would assign the seats around the table, usually in the order of status. Uh, and remember this, this: the events leading up to this, we talked about the apostles arguing among one another, and it seems uh, from Luke 21 that John and Peter were the organizers. And, uh, And so they would have wanted the kind of coveted spots right next to Jesus. Uh, And I do believe that's the case with John. I think we can conclude very very much that that's the case because he leaned on Jesus. But then it would be left to the others maybe to determine the seating order. uh, And and so where does Judas wind up? You you kind of think... uh, He's a thief. He's untrustworthy. They know that. He'd be seated the furthest away, you would think. Uh, but according to what Brother Masalongo says, and I want to recap that a little bit, he gives us three important facts. When Jesus was washing their feet, He came to Peter last. So if they're in that, in that sort of uh, uh, situation around that table, Peter would have been out on the other end. And that seems to make sense. And then when speaking to John, the second thing is Peter had to gesture to John so he wasn't right by John or right by Jesus. He was away from him to have to gesture and get his his attention. And then the third thing, when Jesus spoke and he handed that morsel directly to Judas, he didn't have to get up to do it. And that's probably pretty logical. He handed it to him. So he was within arm's length of Jesus. And I think, you know, we don't know, uh, scriptures not telling us this, but pro- probably Jesus wasn't sitting at the other end, he was right by Jesus. Think about that. Jesus knew his betrayer and he put him right beside him. He was within range. And that that would put Peter out at the end. Now brother Masalango Kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent, suggested that 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 Peter got his feelings hurt, got off on the other end of the table. I don't know that. I don't think we can determine that, uh, but I do think it makes sense that Jesus would put Judas right beside him. And that reminds me of this old saying: Keep your friends close, enemies closer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this, that's just a recap. It's, a con, it's conjecture, you know. Some of it makes sense. But when John wrote that Satan entered into Judas, it's not a suggestion that Judas becomes demon suggested. It references when Judas finally gave in to that full temptation. He gave in. Maybe he was resisting a little bit. And, and when he gave in to that to that temptation... Jesus is no longer the one directing him, directing his soul. Satan is the one that's directing him.: He by Jesus and he listened to the devil. He was no longer under the influence of Christ. He was under the influence of Satan, and he, he gave himself completely over to that sin that he was about to commit. Therefore, Satan was the one that was controlling him. Satan entered him. Now Satan's in control. He's driving the show as as Judas is, is concerned, as far as that's concerned. And it's a sobering lesson that we don't want to be lost on us today. Yes, Larry. Certainly, if we allow life, and he can you sure can, learn. Yes, yeah, sin sin is progressive. When you know, you know, walking in the light is progressive. If you continue to walk in the light, it builds and it progresses. Sin does the same thing in the opposite direction. Um, there can be. Progress into the darkness. Sin can lead you deeper and deeper further in, into sin. And if, if we do God's will more and more, God comes to possess us. But on the other hand, if we sin more and more, we become more and more Satan-possessed. Satan entered Judas. And, and, and Jesus' response was, what you do, do quickly. In other words, He's saying to Judas, you made your commitment. Go do what you do. Stop acting like a disciple. You are a traitor, and the sooner you leave us, the better. Judas was no longer comfortable. And what did it say he did? He, 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 he left straightway. He immediately went out. And he went out into that darkness, figuratively and literally. It was night, and he went out into the darkest. Verses 31 through 35 speaks of the new commandment. We're running short on time. I'm going to try to finish this up uh, uh, this morning. We'll stop with chapter 13 and begin chapter 14 next week. Brother Guy in Woods writes in uh, his commentary on John that he thinks uh, Judas left prior to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus says now. So in that very hour, Judas is betraying Him. Jesus and the Father are being glorified. Jesus refers to the apostles as little children. And that's a really warm, tender way in which Jesus is showing His affection for those remaining 11 apostles there. He, he's aware of their dependence on Him just like a father uh, has his children dependent upon Him. The new command of to love was new in that it was a different love than before. Leviticus nineteen eighteen reads, "You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. This was in reference to the Jews, but not. It is much, it, but but it's it's broader in scope. It's not new in the sense that. Uh, it had not been heard before. The new love embraces your neighbor. All men. All men. Good and bad. In other words, we love our enemies as much as we love our friends. And Jesus is saying, love one another because I have loved you. And you do that to the, to the extent possible. The greatest extent possible. Jesus had immeasurable, limitless love, and, and He looks to us to imitate that. Within our capacity, as possible, as possibly as we can, we've got to love one another. It is, a, if you will, a badge of our discipleship. It ought to mark us. It ought to distinguish, distinguish us from, from the people of the world. And we need to realize that, that those who do not love are not genuine disciples. By not loving, we show that we have not learned love from Christ. The latter part of chapter 13 is uh, Peter's de- denial as predicted by the Lord. Uh, verses 36 through 38, Peter Simon, or Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So the statement of Peter in verse 36 results from Jesus' statement in verse 33. Uh, The the apostles didn't understand the statement. And and they didn't know where the Lord was going. So the the point is that they could not immediately follow the Lord because His work was nearing completion. It It was nearing being finished. Theirs was just beginning. And, and, and Peter seemed grieved almost by this. He, his response was to uh, was for the purpose of showing commitment to the Lord. Uh, but he didn't have an understanding of the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom. And he, he P- Peter w- was stating that he would he would stay with the Lord, and if necessary, he would go ahead and die for the Lord in the process. And again, his, his concept is that it is an earthly kingdom and he, and he just didn't have an understanding at the time of the true nature of the kingdom. He didn't realize the Lord had to first die before He could die for the Lord. The Lord had to first die before He could die for the Lord. And, and the Lord makes it clear to Peter that, that this commitment is far from being as deep and as strong as Peter thought it was. And, and Peter kind of foolishly affirms the, the commitment to the Lord without really knowing what he would do later. And that, that, that would help to gain so much strength in Peter that virtually no adversary could, you know, could deter him or could challenge him. Thank you for your comments this morning. That's down to the end of chapter 13. I believe Mark, you've got chapter 14 next week. We'll stop there.